all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, founders about all things value creation in early stage companies and startups, mostly in technology. Today, I am talking to Vic Thaper, who is the managing director of Cypress Growth Equity, which is the largest and most experienced royalty-based growth capital investor in the United States. Since the formation in 2010, they have completed dozens of multi-million dollar royalty investments in software and tech-enabled service companies with more than $150 million of capital under management, uh, now working on their fund four. Vic, how you doing, man? Pretty good. Thanks, David, for having me on. was looking forward to this. I'm super excited to talk to you because this like royalty-based financing, um, you guys were kind of like one of the first guys to do it in the United States, right? Yeah, uh, we were definitely early on. Um, my partners, who are the founders of Cypress Growth Capital, uh, Bart Goodwin and Ed Mello sort of um, came across a gentleman out of Boston who's sort of known as the father of royalty. Um, and he was doing this, but with early stage businesses, sort of startups, um, writing $25,000 checks, $50,000 checks. His name is Arthur Fox. He's on our website. And so he's sort of known as, um, uh, you know, all things royalty. And, and Bart and Ed Cole called him because they sort of liked what they heard um, and thought that this was something that could be a big thing. And, and Cole called them and then went to raise a fund with this strategy, but with companies that were bigger. Um, so writing million dollar, multi-million dollar checks and companies doing multi-million in revenue while Arthur was writing smaller checks into smaller companies. So, um, so we took what he did um, and sort of enhanced it to be more, you know, series A-ish, if you want to call it that. And, He's on our website, et cetera. And so we, we, you know, they started that in 2011. That's awesome. So you gave an homage to, to Arthur, um, you know, kind of like the Arthur Rock who invented venture capital. It's like everyone's an Arthur in this business. I guess so. I didn't know that, but yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I just read Power Law, which is like the history of VC. So kind of, I'm going to sound smart for about three weeks and then it's just going to die off as my brain cells you know, continue <laughs> to de- deteriorate when I get new information. Yeah, I mean, people have um, people have been doing royalty forever, right? In mining, and pharmaceuticals, oil and gas, music rights. But um, the you know, as a form of late stage venture, is sort of the the uniqueness of our strategy, right? There's not many, if any, doing that. Um, still to this day, we hear people tell us they've never heard of this before, um, and we've been doing it for ten plus years and made you know. 80 plus investments into 45 companies. Yeah. I see like early stage credit guys, they try to do it and then they just revert to doing term and lines of credit. Yeah. Um, which, you know, dependent on, you know, the aspects of that facility can, can sort of stifle growth. Right. So it sort of depends on the, the devils in the details in that regard. So, so yeah. 
so why don't we dive in, Vic, and tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you came to be a, an MD at Cyprus, and then I'd love to kind of d- dive into the whole Cyprus model and how that fits into the capital stack, which is the name of the show. Yeah, happy to. Um, so a Dallas guy, born and raised here. Um, the the early part of my career, uh, I was a consultant, so did technology consulting for about 10 years. And then business school is where I sort of got my first interaction to venture capital, private equity, and really enjoyed it, liked it, went all in. Um, after, after school, I joined um, a venture capital fund called uh, the Emerging Technology Fund. Um, it was a state of Texas venture fund. Um, so it was, you know, it was working with the government to invest in early stage companies. Um, so um, I sort of covered North Texas. So if you were an early stage business, you know, software, life science, energy, whatever, and you were based in North Texas, you would come through us if you were looking for for venture capital funding from the emerging technology fund. So I sort of did that for about three or four years and um, did a number of investments in early stage companies and um, learned a lot. So I learned a lot as a consultant, learned a lot in business school. And then I learned this was sort of like a second business school to me um, because I worked with so many um, early stage businesses in so many different industries um, that I that I really got a crash course in venture. Um, and the folks I worked with used to be venture capitalists and they sort of retired, but they they still wanted to give back. So I had those folks around me and learned a lot um, and sort of collaborated with entrepreneurs service providers and investors. Um, so I got to spend a lot of time with all three of those types of constituents. Um, and then I was lucky enough to meet Bart Goodwin and Ed Mello when they were early on starting Cypress Growth Capital. So I met them in the, in the 2010 timeframe, um, 2011 timeframe, um, when we just got better acquainted. Uh, I, would, I would see a lot of deal flow at the Emerging Technology Fund that were better suited maybe for others. And so I made introductions to, to Bart and Ed of a few companies that they then invested in. Um, and then we got to know each other uh, better through that experience. And then in 2012, I decided to make the leap from the Emerging Technology Fund to join Cypress Growth Capital. Um, and then over the past 10 years have, have elevated into the firm. Um, so it's been great. I think they had made four investments um, when I, when I joined and now we're at 45 portfolio companies of which, you know, a number have exited, but that sort of tells you the trajectory. Um, we're at fund one, four companies. Now we're at fund four and we've made, uh, investments in 45 different companies. Wow. <clears throat> so 45 active portfolio companies. No, we have, um, probably, I think we have 23, 24 active portfolio companies. The rest have exited in some form or fashion. Um, which 90% of our companies, uh, sort of with our capital, you know, the next stage is a growth equity round. Um, so they use us sort of as a bridge to that next growth equity round, um, or strategic sell or PE recap. So those are sort of the three areas we tend to feed into not every time, but 90% of the time, that's where our companies end up going. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about the structure of that in a little bit, but I'd love to kind of talk about your transition to, to VC into royalty base, which was new and emerging. And what was that transition like? Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, you're talking to companies that have no revenue or aspire to have revenue to companies that, you know, have revenue in, in my world. We invest in companies once they have, you know, two or three million in revenue. So you can 
talk to customers. You can see a product demo. There, there's just a lot more there, even though they're still pretty young. Um, on the venture side, you're you know you're 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 looking mostly at the team, the market, and your confidence in them. You know, taking X amount of dollars and 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 getting to some level of revenue. So it's it's a very it, it's much more difficult, obviously, in in picking those seed stage, pre seed stage winners. Um, then in my case, at least I have some metrics I can look at, some customers I can talk to, somewhat of a team that is in place, right? Now, I'm not saying it's going to be a 10-person management team, but there's typically two or three people. Um, in my case today, while um, back then, uh, in an earlier stage, you may, you, may, you may have one, you may have two, uh, hopefully you have two, but, but it, it's definitely assessing things much differently, but the rewards are different, right? The risk rewards are highly different on a pre-seed and st- seed versus the stage I'm investing in, which I would call more series A. Mm-hmm. And so, so tell me what is, um, you know, how is the fund thesis? What is the fund thesis or the firm's thesis and how has it evolved from fund one to fund four? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, we haven't um, changed things up too much. Um, the thesis generally speaking is to invest in um, only B2B companies that sort of fit in three buckets. The first one is the SaaS tech-enabled service bucket, which is where um, most of our investments have been. But we've also done a number of successful investments in the managed services, which is recurring revenue businesses, but maybe less software. And then we've also done a number of investments in sort of niche professional services, which obviously is no software. Uh, but, But given our backgrounds, we feel like we can assess those. And we've done a number of successful investments in those three areas. So the types of businesses we invest in has been the same since day one. Um, that's sort of been our strategy. Um, that's our background. So we definitely can help those companies. Um, but also those companies, um, you know, the companies we're investing in have, are doing more with, with less where they have not raised five, 10, 20, 30 million in, in, in capital. They, they might've raised a couple of million to get off the ground. Um, they sort of bootstrapped their way to a certain degree. And, and now they're looking for capital to sort of fuel that fire so we're sort of the first sponsored round, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, prior to us, it might have been a seed fund or maybe an angel fund or family office, friends and family, things like that. And then we'll come in with the sort of, sort of the, the first institutional capital, I would say, to help them get themselves to the next level. So I, I don't think our thesis has, has changed much besides uh, our geographic focus has expanded. Early on, it was sort of Texas, Colorado, Arizona is where we spent the bulk of our time. And then we've sort of expanded to other markets like the Carolinas, Georgia, Tennessee, um, you know, other areas that I would say are similar to Texas, Colorado and Arizona, where we originally started to invest. Awesome. That's really awesome that you were able to kind of knock what you wanted to invest in and why pretty early. You know, there's nothing that there's nothing an LP likes more than, you know, when you go up to them in fund four and they say, this is what we learned in fund one. <laughs> like things drastically change and you like, you know, learned on someone else's dime. Yeah. And, and RLPs appreciate we're investing in companies that we know given our backgrounds and then entrepreneurs want value added investors. They, they want folks that'll bring more to the table than just capital and our backgrounds speak to that. Um, and so that helps us when we're sourcing and um, picking the companies, but then also it helps uh, on the other end when, they take our capital and they're looking for more than capital to help them go from three, four million to 10 million. So it helps on both fronts. 
So tell me, uh, what, what, how does the deal structure work for anyone who's never heard of revenue-based financing that is looking for a different option besides equity and debt? Yeah, so, um, so, so we sort of coined the, to- the term royalty-based growth capital. Um, you know, it is a form of, of royalty-based financing, RBF. Um, but the way it works is our sort of criteria is, you know, check size is one to five million into companies doing, you know, three million in, in, to about 15 million in revenue. And, and the way it works is um, we make an investment and starting the next month, the royalty would kick in. Um, that royalty is somewhere between two and 5% that's paid monthly until a cap is hit. Once that cap is hit, then the obligation is over. So if you, if you believe in your equity, believe in your company, you feel like if you got a million or two and put it towards these initiatives that you can really scale your business and you are looking for help, then it's the obvious choice than going down the dilutive path. It's, 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 it's in your best interest to maybe delay that for 12, 18, 24 months. Because if you can take our capital and grow from four to let's say seven or eight, or even north of that, it just makes sense all around um, because the value of your company, the pie has gotten so much bigger. And if you raise a round of capital later on, you're giving less of a piece of that pie. The earlier you raise, the bigger the pie you give up. It's just, and it's inherent, right? So if you can kick that can down the road a little bit, um, you know, you have to raise seed capital, right? So you get that seed money in the door, but if you can kick that series A uh, down the road, road or avoid it and go straight to growth capital, there's, there's, there's something to that. Or you could never sell any of your company and continue to pay off the two to 5% until the cap and own hundred percent of your company and not have somebody up your ass on the board. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that happens pretty frequently where, you know, like I mentioned earlier, our, our companies take our capital and th- typically three different things happen. One of them is a growth equity fund. The other one is PE recap or strategic. And in that case, they're selling all of their company or more than 50%, which means they have a, a nice liquidity event, right? The management team, the founders, and the early shareholders sort of have a nice uh, liquidity event in the case of a PE recap, but then they get another bite at the apple, right? So to your point, yeah, they can take our capital, go straight to an exit, and their financial outcome may be exactly the same if they would have raised growth equity, but because of because of that, they might have to raise, uh, they may have to exit at a much bigger valuation, which may get them to the same outcome, right? Um, but it sort of depends on 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 their path, right? There's no, either one could work for us, growth equity or not. Um, but in our case, we're just telling them, just kick that can, can down the road, decide later. Yeah, as long as they're selling, it really doesn't matter. That's right. If they're selling, either path will work, right? If they... If they want to do an all-out sale, that works. Or if they want to do a growth equity because they're creating additional value. And honestly, because they really haven't raised much capital and they take our capital, put it into sales and marketing, they've proven to the next investor, look, I got a million or two from Cyprus, put it into sales and marketing, and look what I accomplished. I haven't had the, I haven't had the ability to put a lot of capital towards sales and marketing. I did that now and look what the end outcome was. And then I think just inherently, if you tell somebody you're doing whatever you can to avoid dilution, that really tells somebody how much you think your company is worth today and what it potentially could be worth down the road. I think, you know, there's something to hearing that out of an entrepreneur's mouth. Yeah. It's a positive signal. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's what we like to hear. We want to hear people that really believe in their company. Those are the types of entrepreneurs we want to invest in. 
Yeah, it's like there's nothing worse than an entrepreneur who gives you a budget and they say, okay, well, if you miss the budget, we're going to do a valuation adjustment. They're like, wait, what? And I was like, you gave me the numbers. I didn't, you know, <laughs> like I didn't make exactly. this up. Um, so if you don't have conviction in your numbers, that's a pretty, pretty bad signal. That's right. That's right. And so how long does a company usually, like, are, are they with you before they go through one of these three doors or yeah, hit their cap? Yeah, I mean, typically two to three years is where it ends up shaking out. Not, I would say that's where most of them shake out, some earlier, some later, because some sort of positive outcome occurs then. Um, one of those three things that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I would say in the two to three year mark, they have some sort of, you know, liquidity event or growth equity event, something of that nature, but they can go five, six, seven years. I mean, it sort of, it varies, but I, I would say the bulk of them are in that two to three year mark. And then like when you come up with that cap, you essentially say, okay, this is what the capital is. This is what, I mean, do, do, do how do you, th- I'm not asking you for, for inside baseball and the actual numbers, but how do you think about making your cap your cap? Do you just say, okay, like I know what I need to make for my investors to what I told them and I need to back into that number? Or do you think about, okay, the cost of capital for equity is this, the cost of capital for debt is this, and we want to play somewhere in between? How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I would say it's, um, you know, the quality, the, you know, I would, I would say um, it generally, you know, shakes out to, you know, you know, how the company's doing, how much capital are we providing? How fast do we think they're going to grow? Things of that nature is what ends up shaking out on what is the the royalty rate? What is the cap? Things like that. So just the dynamics of the business. Yeah. So there's just so many qualitative and quantitative aspects to the business when you underwrite it to come up with those levers. I would say it's very similar to venture, right? When you're making an equity investment, it it, it varies deal by deal on oh, the management team, the market, the product, client concentration, you just, you know, when you're assessing a business, no matter if it's me or if it's you or a growth equity fund, you know, all, all valuations in an equity world are not the same, right? So it just has to do with the, the characteristics of the business, I would say. Um, when we look at them all, it's not, not just the, fi- uh, the financials are just one aspect of the company. There's many other aspects of the business that are equally as important to the financials. But uh, the financials obviously are the, um, are the starting point to a certain degree, just given our criteria that we have. And is there any uh, warrant coverage on on the financing? Yeah, typically there is a small warrant um, that is involved. Um, so yeah. Okay, so you so you can participate in the upside as a partner for taking the risk. Yeah, and I would also say we do equity investments alongside our our royalty as well. Oh, nice. So we are capable of you know doing royalty and then equity alongside it. Um, or equity following a royalty investment. We've done that on a few occasions as well, where a company has taken our capital grown and then we um, have helped them. They've gotten to know us and now they're raising a true growth equity round. And then we come in and participate or syndicate with somebody else. So we've done that as well. Um, so that tells you a little bit about the companies we're picking and they're wanting us to come in that growth equity round as well. And so when you go and, and pitch royalty-based financing or royalty-based growth capital, as you coined it, are you competing with other people that do what you do? Or are you competing with equity and debt? Or are you competing at all? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a form of competition, um, not on every deal, but on deals. Um, and in some cases, cases, it's do nothing, right? The entrepreneur decides to do nothing because they tend to, because they haven't raised a ton of money, they, they sort of, you know. They can, they can get profitable. 
they then get profitable or, or stay break even, right? Um, but at the end of the day, the entrepreneur needs to decide, do I want to go down the path of raising equity and, and facing dilution, et cetera, or not, right? And, and once they've made that decision, then, you know, um, there may be other folks like myself in the conversation, and, and sometimes there's not. Um, oftentimes there's not because the entrepreneur is looking for more than just capital. Um, so they're looking for advice you know, board level advice, things like that, that we bring to the table. So it, it varies, but there's always some level of competition, right? No, no entrepreneur is going to pick uh, one investor and move forward. And it's very rare. They, they definitely are going to, you know, talk to a handful of folks and then determine what is the best type of capital. And then what is the best type of partner, I would say, because um, there's more to a firm than just the capital. Now, are there, do you take board seats? We do not take a board seat. Um, so the control remains as is, but we do the things that a good board member would do. Um, we help our companies in that way. Yeah, you don't need to be a board member to be a value-add. That's right. Um, and I think our entrepreneurs realize that with the conversations we're having with them prior to an investment that, you know, these questions may be a little different than, than you might get from, you know, a, a bank or, or a Meslender or something like that. What kind of questions would those be? It's more financially oriented. Yeah. Um, versus asking about, you know, sales process and competition and, and other aspects of the business um, versus just the financial. Awesome. Awesome. So you've expanded uh, nationally. So how, what is your deal sourcing strategy? How do you go out and put yourself in front of people and tell people your story? Yeah, I think um, because we've been doing this for 10 plus years, um, and we, we send, we tend to focus on a handful of markets. We get to know those folks in the market. Um, and as they come across opportunities, they tend to remember us. Um, and then we get introed in. So it's sort of the channel channel approach, I would say is sort of where, uh, most of our investments occur. Um, and then as we make investments, we announce it to the world. And then we tend to get, you know, another round of, 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 uh, prospects, and then we just move that down the funnel. So, you know, obviously being in Texas, spending, doing, having done a number of investments in your backyard in Arizona as well as in Colorado, um, you know, people tend to tend to get to know us or hear about us. And then we get deal flow from, you know, partners, which are growth equity funds and senior lenders, accounting firms, law firms, folks like that. So even though we're an alternative to equity, we get quite a bit of deal flow from equity because we feed into it. And then we meet companies that are a better fit for equity and vice versa. Right. And there's not, not every business is a venture back business, right? That's, that's right. So there's plenty of businesses that may not be a fit for venture. And there's plenty of companies that are a fit for venture and a fit for us. So the companies that venture would love to get into, we can do, but the entrepreneur is looking to sort of not do venture or equity today, right? So we can sort of invest on both sides of the coin. Um, and so if an entrepreneur is talking to an equity investor and uh, the valuation is too high or they're really not looking for equity. We oftentimes get, get, get deals referred to us from series A investors. Um, it's very competitive and collaborative, just like it is in the equity world where they compete with each other and they syndicate. So we're sort of the same thing. Uh, any outbound strategy? Yeah. Are you banging uh, phones at all or doing emails? No, not really. Um, you know, we, we, we email companies. we, we hear about, we come across, we don't make phone calls. Um, we, we do a, I would say it's a little bit more thoughtful of an approach. 
if that makes sense. Uh, we're a small team too. Like there's, there's six of us in the firm. Um, so we're not one of those, you know, multi-hundred dollar, you know, funds or billion dollar funds. So, um, so it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, our approach, we can talk to a lot of companies or we can invest in a wide variety of companies, but, but, you know, we tend to invest in two to 3% of the companies we talk to. So it's a pretty focused approach on the quality of companies. Yeah. I, uh, you might not have a fi- uh, a 50 person deal team, but you do serve Topo Chico in your office. We do. And uh, it's very popular. So, uh, then the large and the large size as well, as you noticed. Yeah. The large size, which I didn't even know existed. I mean, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Ryan, our analyst is a big Topo Chico fan. So we want to keep him well hydrated. Yeah. We, uh, like we buy up the stock. We'll buy literally like two months at, like at a time and just clear out the store. Like we bought, we buy Topo Chico, like people bought toilet paper in the pandemic. Yeah, and I think Topo Chico, at least in Texas, I think is hard to come by from time to time. Mm-hmm. It's because it doesn't make it past Arizona. Like the exactly. trucks don't, yeah, the trucks don't go that far. They, they stop, uh, stop with you. <laughs> so, what are you excited about? How are your feelings about the market? Kind of, where, where do you see the next couple, you know, years going for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, as it's it's no surprise, the valuations have been high the last couple of years. Um, valuations have already come down drastically in the public market and the private market um, has followed just as the market valuations increased in the public market, the private market followed suit. So now um, valuations are coming down. Um, We've done our fair share of deals, even though valuations are high the last couple of years, I think as valuations come down, um, you know, um, opportunities for us will will um, be even higher. Um, so we're you know we're sort of going to capitalize on on this recession that seems to be that we're in or, or soon to be in. Um, so we're we're going to deploy capital into into some good companies. This is a great opportunity for this is like your Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, not in know, a bad way. It's just, you know, companies just, you know, they, they need more time and they need more runway to grow into the valuations that were set. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, if, if a company raised a considerable amount of capital at a, at a, at a pretty high valuation, you've probably, you're, you're not a fit for us. You've, you've decided to go down the, the equity path, which there's nothing wrong with that. That, that's, that, that's just a path um, that, that doesn't work for us given our investment strategy. Um, so if you were toying with the idea and don't want to do it, then you're a great candidate for us. Um, so I think that's where, um, things will become busy for us is a company that thought about going down the equity path, but valuations have come down and want to kick that can down the road or avoid it altogether. I think that's going to, that's going to fill our pipeline up. So I'm excited for the next couple of years. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you just closed fun four. We closed Fund 4 um, a year ago, so May 2021, so we're a year in. Um, we've made four investments out of that fund, um, have a pretty healthy pipeline. So, so yeah, so we're, we're uh, meeting a lot of good companies, traveling uh, to markets like Arizona, um, and, and excited about the next 24 months. Awesome. Why didn't you hit me up for Fund 4? Uh, you know, you have your own fund, so I figured... Uh, you know, we could collaborate as 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 you could be a feeder into us. Right? Yeah, but I I want to I want to taste some of that sweet revenue based finance returns. I mean, that's that's a good that's a good asset class. 
Yeah, no, our, our LPs are happy, of which we have some out of Arizona. Um, but yeah, no, definitely we'll hit you up in about a year and a half, if not sooner. Um, but yeah, I, our LPs are, are happy. And, and like you said, we're investing out of our fourth fund. Um, and our companies benefited with the high valuations the last couple of years. So the companies that are in our third fund, um, there, were, there were a number of exits that came out um, with growth equity or strategic exits, et cetera. So um, when valuations were high, deploying capital um, is harder, just generally speaking, um, but it definitely benefited our companies um, in fund three um, if they chose to go through an exit. And the decision was entirely theirs, right? How uh, how how is the fundraising journey from you from being a government backed you know uh, balance sheet from a, on your earlier career to you know having to sing for your supper every three years or year and a half? Yeah, I mean um, we're sort of blessed that we have a we have a a good LP base, um, a diverse good LP base that is happy that we spend a good amount of time with. So knock on knock on wood, fundraising. Um, was efficient, went well um, for fund four. It's definitely different um, than my emerging technology fund days because that was sort of just an allocation of capital, right? Uh, Governor Perry sort of allocated X amount of dollars, taxpayer dollars to go towards investing in in startups. So there was no raising funds um, from that standpoint, but deploying the capital obviously was harder because it was, you know, you had to go through the, 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 you know, the process of the state of Texas, right? Where it, it can slow things down, um, can take a little while to get an investment from the state of Texas. Yeah, which could, which may or may not be as like as slow as a normal VC, right? <laughs> oh, it was much slower. It was six, nine months, right? Yeah. To get an investment from the state of Texas could be elongated if, you know, for a variety of reasons, just because they had a lot of check marks they had to do. Um, so there was a lot of pivots in a, in an early stage company in six, nine months. Right. So, um, you know, fundraising was easy when you were working for the emerging technology fund, cause it was just an allocation of capital, but deploying the capital can, can, would take a lot longer, you know, being a private fund and having healthy returns and good companies that we pick. Um, you know, we, we have a, we have a, a good LP base that, that is happy and fun fundraising fund four wasn't, wasn't long and drawn out, thankfully. How has, uh, have you gone the institutional route or are you still doing family office and high net worth? Yeah, our, our LPs are uh, entrepreneurs that we invested in and that have had a liquidity event. Nice. Um, so it's a nice circle, right? We invested in them. That's great validation. Yeah, exactly. Um, as well as family offices and, and entrepreneurs that we've gotten to know over the years. So it, it's not really institutions at this time. So, so yeah, I, uh, I went to a, a institution conference here in Arizona and, you know, heard these guys kind of speak about, you know, talking to fund managers and how they look at things. And I just walked out of there. Like I got punched in the stomach. <laughs> like, these guys are so hardcore. Yeah. You know, I, there's, I think it's a, there's a long road before you get to that level because they're writing fifty hundred million dollar checks and you know, their, their level of, of risk tolerance is not high. Yeah, and then they're managing billions of dollars, right? So it's all about asset class, um, things of that nature. So um, we mostly have family offices, et cetera. That you know, that's sort of our LP base today. 
Yeah, what my my biggest uh, takeaway from Texas was just how open and friendly the capital community was with each other uh, in Texas, basically in, in Highland, Old Highland. Yeah, Old Parkland. Oh, Parkland. Sorry. Yeah, Old Parkland. Yeah, the Crow, uh, the Crow family, Harlan Crow, has done a phenomenal job of of creating a campus, a community in Dallas of of investors, uh, family office, private equity funds, angels. I mean, you name it. Um, it's it's a really impressive community. Not not only from from a you know the look and the feel of Old Parkland, but the tenants. Um, you know, we collaborate really well with with folks on campus. So. Uh, Mr. Crow's done a phenomenal job of building what he built, but more importantly, getting the folks there um, and really creating a community. Um, that's not easy to do. Um, and he's successfully done that and continuing to do that. So we're really blessed to be at Old Parkland and, and collaborate with the folks that are there. Uh, you saw it firsthand. Your, your cousin's there, I think you said. Yeah, it's kind of like Hogwarts for rich people. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't call it – I would probably point it that. Um, of course, you get kicked out. Yeah, but it, it's, it's a great community, and it's very collaborative. They have a lot of thought leadership. So, yeah, it's it's definitely higher end, um, but nobody makes you feel that way. No, no, definitely not. But just the old, the old feeling of it, right, the old kind of like university, you know, um, architecture and art is just – it's incredible. Vic, Vic, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hopefully, I'll get you on. I've got a couple quick canned questions for you. What yep. is your favorite book? Oh, that's Ooh, a good yeah. question. Come, mm-hmm. come back to me on that one. Okay, like tomorrow or? No, no, in like two minutes. Okay. You know, I get, <laughs> all right. I've got all these books right here. So, um, so yeah, so come back uh, to me. Best piece of business advice you've ever received? Yeah, you know, I would say I learned a lot in business school uh, the importance of networking. Um, so I would say the best business advice I was given was learn from others, give back, don't expect anything in return. Um, that that's sort of the advice I received over my career, and I give um, give to give to others is. Um, you know, be respectful to others, but, but help them don't expect anything in return, but most oftentimes you get something back in return, even though you're not expecting it. So continue to network and, and help others. Goodwill. Yeah. Goodwill goes a long way. I had to learn that, um, the hard way, but you know, it's definitely better to be the good guy. Yeah, I, I would, I would say that's, that's very true. Um, and it's the way the world should work is helping people. Um, even though, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs every day that I, that they may not be a fit for me, um, for a variety of reasons, but I always try to come up with a way to help them at the end of the conversation. Um, and I think the other sort of mantra I live by is like responded to email. You get an email, unless it's obvious spam, et cetera, you know, respond to the person. And if it's not a fit, tell them no. And, and maybe at a high level, why without sort of doing it in a, bashing way or a negative way, um, sort of constructive criticism, but don't leave them hanging. Um, I, I, you know, no, yeah, it's bad luck. That's bad luck, bad luck. And I, and, and entrepreneurs sort of at the end of the day, when they don't hear a no and they haven't received a response, they think there's, there's something there. So I think it's really important to provide feedback, um, and help people. So awesome. So, yeah. 
Cool, man. Well, it was great talking to you. What was your favorite book? You're not getting off that easy. Uh, you know, good to great is great. I mean, there's so many that I read and so many blogs. It's really hard to hard to say. That's why I have so many books around me. But uh, I just like reading business books, entrepreneurial books, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. What, was the last, what was the last good one you read? Uh, the last what? The last good one you read. I don't know, man. Let's... Uh, I think I'm more the the podcast, hearing the, okay. the entrepreneurial journeys. Yeah. Um, what, what podcast do you like? What blogs do you like to follow? I like, you know, I like the um, the uh, guy. Um, uh, what's his name? Guy uh, guy interviews all the entrepreneurs on, you know, what uh, what went wrong early on. Um, every entrepreneur thinks it's sort of the just because of like because of media, they feel like to get to a successful entrepreneur, to be in a successful company sort of like this. Um, but that's not the case at all. So hearing, you know, the ups and downs of entrepreneurism, I think is important. So all these podcasts that sort of interview uh, founders and them being very transparent about, you know, we almost ran out of money, uh, but we signed this contract or my investors were willing to give me one last pool of capital. I mean, I think those are, are the the podcasts I love hearing because I think they're the most honest. So there's a company here in Dallas called Alchemy um, that IPO'd, and we I interviewed the founder at Venture Dallas, which is a, a conference here in Dallas that I co-founded, and he he was you know days away from running out of capital, but he signed a contract, and that's what got things going. And then they IPO'd about a year and a half ago, right? So you know. Failure to success, I mean, it, it could, in this case, could be within weeks, right? So those are the sort of the stories I love hearing because they're the most honest. And I think entrepreneurs that don't, that are, have not been entrepreneurs and they just read articles, et cetera, they think, you know, it's a very easy path to success, which is not the case at all. And you know that in being where you are and the types of companies you invest in. Yep. Lost a lot of hair. Exactly. <laughs> you know, missing pay, you know, getting very close to missing payrolls and, you know, sometimes companies work and sometimes they don't. And, you know, I mean, you have, sometimes you have to cut your losses. But, um, yeah, no, it's definitely part of the game. Learning learning from failure. And if you could just live to fight another day, I think that's huge. Yeah, and I think the, the entrepreneurs in your backyard um, concentrate on unit economics and, and business fundamentals that allow them to, to you know, break through a, a pandemic, break through a recession, things like that, right? Um, they, they look at that those types of uh, business traits to, to if they did hit tough times, they hopefully can can get through them. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very cool, David. Well, thank you for having me on. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for coming on, everybody. That is the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and founders about all things value creation in startups and technology. Uh, please subscribe, share with a friend, leave a review. It's greatly appreciated, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.